Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles's number one sports podcast network, the only place with the show for every team in LA and more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? I'm Nara Wang, and my guest for episode 20 is an associate professor at the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, a former editor and writer for the LA Times, and a voter for the Heisman Trophy, which we'll get into a little bit later, Jeff Fellinzer. Jeff, welcome back to the Everything USC podcast. How was your holiday season? Thanks so much for having me on again, Nara. Always a pleasure. Happy New Year to you and your listeners. Had a great holiday season. I'm fired up to have 2020 behind us and excited about uh, what 2021 could bring. Yes, we are all looking forward to hopefully this new year bringing us much better things than what we just experienced in 2020. And of course, if you enjoy listening to the show, you can subscribe and rate it wherever you get your favorite podcasts, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Luminary, TuneIn, or more. Or just go to the website Believe.com, which is B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media at Believe Podcast. For me, you can find and follow me on Twitter at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Jeff, let the people know where they can catch up with you. Yeah, just Twitter is is at Jay Fellenzer, F-E-L-L-E-N-Z-E-R, Instagram. My podcast is called The Front Row. Just plug in my name and The Front Row, however you access podcasts, iTunes, whatever. Hoping to add some content this spring. My schedule opens up a little bit, so I'm excited to be able to refocus a little bit on content for the podcast and really looking forward to that and having some great conversations. The Everything USC podcast is brought to you by Bet Online. The Super Bowl is right around the corner. If you're looking to make a bet on the big game or any of the sports going on, betonline.ag is the absolute best place for you to lock it in. Are the Chiefs going to repeat as NFL champs? Or will Tom Brady add another ring to his collection? If you feel you know the answers, those are just a couple of the things you can bet on at BetOnline. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there is always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. This is, of course, the first episode of 2021, and we'll be looking back at the Trojans football season. But starting with how it ended, since I haven't recorded the show since the disappointing 31-24 loss to Oregon in the Pac-12 championship game, ending USC's 2020 season because the team elected to not go to a bowl game, which would have been the Alamo Bowl, as was the case with nearly every game In the pandemic-shortened six-game run, SC started off slow, allowing the Ducks to jump out to a 14-0 first-quarter lead, 
that they would never relinquish because there would be no fourth quarter heroics this time from Keaton Slovis, who threw his first career interception in the fourth quarter, one of three that he threw on the night, and finishing his second straight season with an injury as he was crushed before he could fling a Hail Mary pass on the final play for USC. All of the team's flaws that were clear to see, but that had been overcome in the five previous games, were finally fully exposed by an Oregon team that only got into the Pac-12 title game because Washington was unable to play due to COVID-19 issues among its program. Some can say that USC was put at a disadvantage by having to play its third game in 13 days, while Oregon hadn't played in those 13 days. But the bottom line is that the Trojans couldn't beat a team that had lost to Cal and Oregon State. Jeff, what did you make of that loss to the Ducks in the Pac-12 championship? Well, I'm not going to say that I was surprised. I really wasn't. Oregon was such a hard team to figure out. I had actually picked them to lose to Cal. I just watched them lose to Oregon State, and I felt like Cal had at least one good game in them one game where they put it all together. So they were one of those teams, a kind of a hot and cold team. And not to make excuses for USC, but I did feel going in that having one less day to prepare for the game could hurt. And then as you pointed out, if you add up, you know, two previous games and over the course of 13 days, whatever it was, to have played three games. I thought that might prove to be a problem against a team that came in with a lot of juice. I mean, you could tell on the first drive, they were just jacked up. Like they had an extra level of energy. And so I thought that kind of was what I feared for USC, how it could manifest, that it was going to be hard to, with you know one less day to prepare to come out and match Oregon's energy level. So I felt like Washington would have been a better matchup I think it would have been an easier matchup. So when Oregon was announced, I thought, you know, this is going to be a hard game. So I would say I wasn't that surprised. You know, Oregon ends up winning by a touchdown. And it was interesting because the guy that was so hard to handle, Kayvon Thibodeau, just underlined what a special talent he is. And a player like that, a pass rushing defensive end, which are so highly sought by everyone. And then knowing that you know, Corey Foreman was about to make his decision. It almost was like, yeah, this is one thing that's missing is a player like that going forward, certainly one that could now pair with someone as good as Drake Jackson. So another way to look at it was it underscored again how valuable it is to have a player of that talent local on top of it and to keep that player home. So again, it looked like maybe the amount of games and the sort of this run of the last few weeks where there was a lot of emotion and a lot of games to be played and the difficulty of trying to do it during COVID looked like it all kind of added up and Oregon, as I said, just really seemed to have more juice that night. Yeah, I mean, Kayvon Thibodeau was a disruptive factor all game. He had five tackles, two for loss and a sack and just committed to making Keaton Slovis's night a living nightmare, basically. He was all over the place there. And again, though, USC had a chance late, but that terrible start by the offense with an interception, punt, interception, and then Marquis Stepp gets stuffed for a two-yard loss on a fourth and one. Those are the first four drives of the game by USC's offense. 
Meanwhile, Oregon throws a changeup into the mix or a curveball, however you want to put your baseball metaphors in there by using the transfer senior quarterback Anthony Brown from Boston College to replace Tyler Shuck for some of the drives during the game. Both of them end up throwing for two touchdowns in it, and yet Oregon still only had 243 yards of total offense, 135 rushing, 108 passing, but the two early picks by Slovis gave them great field position, and it just seemed like despite some good efforts by some of the Trojan defenders, I mean, Talanoa Hufanga, again, 12 tackles, 10 of them solo, two sacks, Kanai Mauga, 14 tackles, an interception, Isaiah Polamau, 10 tackles, one and a half for loss for him there, but it just seemed that they dug themselves a hole as usual, and they couldn't get themselves out of it fully this time, and I went into the game picking USC to lose because I just kind of felt that they were going to follow the same formula, and this time it wouldn't work out for them, Yeah. and I should mention we should go over the predictions results for the season my final guest for the season leading into that game was Trojans wire rider Andy Patton and for the players that we believed in I took Tyler Vaughns he took Vivai Malapai obviously we recorded it before we knew that Malapai was not going to play in that game and so even though Vaughns didn't have a great game two catches 24 yards I get the win there basically just because Malapai didn't play For the game score, like I said, I picked Oregon 34-31. Andy thought USC would summon the fourth quarter magic and come back with a 42-35 win. So I obviously win that one with the 31-24 Oregon win. And then in the prop bet, Nara's no-doubter was that USC would convert less than 50% of its third downs. And I was correct, only 5 of 15 for the Trojans. Meanwhile, Andy called his the General's Guarantee for the General Patton nickname, and he went way out on the limb. He said two touchdowns for Eric Cromenhook, the tight end, and he did get two catches, but they were not touchdowns. So I sweep Andy on the predictions for the week, 3 nothing, and for the season, I was able to defeat the collective guests on the show 8-4, to four. I took down Pete Arbogast, 2 nothing. Frosty Rucker, 2 nothing. Mike Yam got me, 2 nothing. I beat Petros Papadakis, 1-0. Tim Brando got me, 2-0. And then I finish it off strong against Andy Patton with the 3-0 sweep. So 8-4 on the season. I win the predictions battle there against the guests this year. And Good work, Nara. Good work. That's why you're the expert, man. That's why you're in that seat. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just got lucky a few times, and then I finally hit the prop bet. Nara's no doubter finally hit in the final game, and of course, it was when I didn't really want to be right, because I was picking against USC, basically. So, yeah, I mean, it was just one of those games, and like I said, a reflection on the season, which was, you know, 5-1, and one One game against Colorado got canceled due to COVID-19 issues for USC. And, I mean, you had some standouts. Talano Hufanga was named the Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Year, a consensus first-team All-American, first-team All-Pac-12, along with Marlon Tui-Pelotu, Keaton Slovis, Amon Ross St. Brown, and Elijah Vera Tucker. Second-team guys in the conference, Drake London, Tyler Vons, Drake Jackson, and Chris Steele. So, on the whole, 
would you consider it a successful season for USC? You know, it's a good question, and it's certainly one that uh, the USC fan base has to consider questions like this, you know, each of these last few years. You know, is it being right there and competing for Pac-12 championships, or should it be measured by playoff appearances, competing for a national championship? I mean, I think every year the Rose Bowl is a great realistic goal should be. And I think all things considered in this year, unlike any other, this surreal season that, you know, to come out of it without having too many setbacks once the season started, getting the games in that were scheduled, you know, minus the one, I'd have to say at least, if not the season that you had hoped, which would have included winning the Pac-12 championship game and getting to one of the New Year's six games, I'd say a little short of that. Is that considered successful? Probably USC standards, no. But again, you know, circumstances being what they were, I would say, you know, it's one of those years you just kind of want to sweep under the rug, get rid of it for a lot of reasons, and, you know, hope you've made some progress. And I think the program made progress. And there's a lot to look forward to next year. Yes. And leading into the final game, as everyone knows, I run the Helton Hot Seat Scale poll on Twitter to get the pulse of Trojan fans on how they feel, how hot the seat is for head coach Clay Helton. And at 5-0, and going into the Pac-12 title game, it was really split pretty evenly among the four choices, which is Carolina Reaper, Ghost Pepper, Habanero, and Cayenne, based on how <laughs> spicy you think the hot seat is. But after the loss to Oregon... Here were the final results for the Helton Hot Seat Scale poll for the season. 73% taking Carolina Reaper, 18% for Ghost Pepper, no votes for Habanero, actually, and then 9% Cayenne. So the week before, it had been about 26 or so, 27% for three of the choices there, and instead it flips all the way up to Carolina Reaper, 73%. So... Fans not happy about the loss in the Pac-12 title game, which I think goes to your point that the expectation for USC is to compete for the playoff and a New Year's Six Bowl, at least in this crazy season. And that did not happen. So we've seen some of the same undisciplined things happen with penalties and things that make a fan shake their head and say, what is going on when you see it repeatedly over and over over the years? They did let go of two coaches, offensive line coach Tim Drevno and strength and conditioning coach Aaron Osmus were both not retained after the season. So we'll see who the replacements end up being for those two. And did we learn really anything more about the coaching staff? We had some new guys come in with Todd Orlando as the new defensive coordinator and Dante Williams came in from Oregon to be cornerbacks coach and the lead recruiter. He's been upgraded to an associate head coach now. We'll get into that just a little bit because he's doing a good job in that regard for sure. And a new special teams coordinator with Sean Snyder coming in. What did you think of the revamped coaching staff? Well, you know, I would say, first of all, getting back to the season as a whole, I think the first two games were concerning you know, that it took a really a, a miracle to pull the Arizona State game out at home and then to look at what happened at Arizona to think that the game could come down to the last minute to a team that got beat 70-7 to by its rival Arizona State. So when you look at the comebacks, there's always two ways to look at it. Boy, you showed up 
you showed a lot of heart, moxie to find a way to come back. And then you step back and say, wait a minute, why were we in a position that we almost lost these games? So you'd have to say not having the time together as a coaching staff probably took a toll. When you revamp a staff and basically have almost you know half the staff new trying to work together, get players up to speed with a new defensive coordinator, which is you know a significant hire, and then to not have that time, you know, it's probably not a surprise that early season results were what they were, which were hanging on and pulling out a game in the most unlikely of ways. And Arizona State had more time to practice together. And it probably showed for the first, you know, about 55 minutes of that game. So I don't know if necessarily a shortened season with not much of an offseason at all and no spring ball to speak of was really a fair gauge for the new staff. I think you saw some promise on defense. The secondary's numbers were improved. So that speaks well for Dante Williams. And I think that the players responded to the new defensive schemes pretty well overall. It certainly seemed like that was also a positive in Corey Foreman's decision, liked what he saw with the defense, liked where it was going. I'm sure he heard good things about it from his former teammate, Drake Jackson. So I would say you'd give it a positive and say that maybe a better test will be 2021. So let's talk about the future of USC's football program. Here are the guys who are leaving early for the NFL draft. Most of them, as expected. Talano Hufanga, I mean, with the season he had, he has to turn pro early. Amon Ross St. Brown, most people are expecting him to turn pro. Elijah Vera Tucker had actually decided to opt out and get ready for the NFL draft before coming back when the Pac-12 restarted football. Marlon Tui Pelotu had a very good season, and so he enters his name early as well. The surprise might be cornerback Elijah Griffin, who decided to spend his three years at USC and move on. So they joined Jay Tufele, who had opted out of the season as early entrance. Marquis Stepp, the running back, goes into the transfer portal, which is not a huge surprise based on the running attack that USC is using in the air raid. And I think he wants to get more carries somewhere where he can be a number one every down back. And then on the defensive side, Palaie Naoteote and Connor Murphy also entering the transfer portal. There are a couple of guys that USC is bringing in as transfers so far. A safety from Texas, who is obviously very familiar with Todd Orlando and Craig Navarre, Xavier Alford, and a defensive tackle from Alabama, Ishmael Sopsher, is coming in. And then, of course, the recruiting, which a year ago, at this time, a lot of stress, a lot of angst about USC's recruiting a class that ended up ranked 64th in the country by 24-7 sports. Well, the incoming class this year is currently ranked 8th in the nation by 24-7 and 2nd in the Pac-12 behind just Oregon, who is listed at 6th overall right now. It is headlined, of course, by a guy you've already mentioned. The number one overall recruit by 24-7 sports' rankings for 2021, Corey Foreman out of Corona Centennial. Two quarterbacks in the class are Miller Moss from Bishop Alamany, the number seven ranked pro style quarterback, and then the number nine ranked pro style guy, Jackson Dart out of Draper, Utah. The guy who had been committed to USC for so long, the number five ranked pro style quarterback, Jake Garcia, ended up going to play high school football in Georgia and then signs with 
Miami, the Hurricanes, instead as USC upped its recruitment of Dart late, and maybe that's because they knew Garcia wasn't going to stay, but for whatever reason, the guy who had been the face of the class ends up not going to USC. Three wide receivers in the class, Kyron Ware Hudson from Modern Day, Michael Jackson out of Las Vegas, Nevada, and a kid from Texas, Joseph Manjack. A couple of good tight ends. The number four ranked tight end in the class, Michael Trigg from Carrollwood Day School in Tampa, Florida. And Lake McCree, the 21st ranked tight end out of Lake Travis High School in Austin, Texas. A school that most people are probably more familiar with. With quarterbacks, Baker Mayfield, Garrett Gilbert, just a couple of the ones who have come out of Lake Travis High. Just one running back, also out of Texas, from Katy, Texas, Brandon Campbell, who's been big in the recruiting for USC, trying to get other guys to join in as well with this Trojan class. Three offensive linemen after a 2020 class that had a bunch of linemen, three of them so far with Mason Murphy out of J. Sarah Catholic in San Juan Capistrano, Ty Buchanan from Corpus Christi, Texas, and St. John Bosco's Maximus Gibbs. And then when you flip it over to the defensive side, besides Corey Foreman on the defensive line, you had Jay Toya from Grace Brethren and Colin Mobley from DeMatha Catholic in Maryland, which is, of course, very famous for its basketball team. But they also are the school that produced Chase Young, who is tearing it up as a rookie for the Washington football team in the NFL. Linebacker, only one so far committed to USC. The eighth-ranked outside linebacker in the 2021 class, Julian Simon from Tacoma, Washington. But USC is supposed to be the front-runner for modern day's Rajon Davis, and that would be huge if they can get him. And then six defensive back-slash-athletes in this class, most of those guys are guys who are considered to be possible offensive or defensive guys, but for USC purposes, they're all looked at as probable defensive back players. So the number 12 ranked corner from Northern California, Prophet Brown. You have Kalen Bullock out of John Muir, and Anthony Beavers Jr. from Narbonne, Zamarian Gordon from Warren. Jalen Smith from Bishop Alamany, and then the big name, the number six ranked cornerback in the class who committed on the same day as Corey Foreman on national TV out of Loyola, Sierra Wright, who still is listed as being unsigned, but a hard commit to USC. So a pretty strong class, obviously, much better than what everyone was looking at the year before. What do you like to highlight, Jeff, from this recruiting class for SC? Well, I think it was a good class certainly worthy of a top 10 ranking when you can get a difference maker. And of course, we always say this and having watched enough high school games and players over the years, we say this at least on paper or what we think project to be great prospects. And certainly Foreman looks like he's in the mold of a Kayvon Thibodeau type talent, a difference maker and a real premium today placed on guys that can pressure the quarterback it's so hard to stop offenses today. Really, it's not sometimes those high scores you say, boy, can't they find anybody to play defense? No, it's because the offenses are just really hard to stop. And when you're in the shotgun most of the time, it's even harder to get to the quarterback. So when you can find what appears to be a difference maker and getting to the quarterback, that's huge. Really seem to load up on defensive backs. There's some really good safety and corner prospects in that group. 
with two quarterbacks, there's always a much better chance you're going to have at least one of them turn out to be good enough to be a starter. I think ideally you don't bring in two in any one class, but sometimes you have to because you, you know, you were short in another class. So I was alerted to Jackson Dart early in his senior year. He was a name that in spite of incredible numbers really wasn't on many radar screens going into his senior year, but he got on a lot of them with his performance, which, I mean, it's hard to process in your mind numbers like 67 touchdown passes and four interceptions and 1,100 yards rushing, averaging over 10 yards a carry. So accuracy and, you know, strong arm, good bloodlines. Dad played at Utah, was a DB in Utah. It's funny, with Miller Moss, you get kind of split opinions. Some schools were high on him, others not as high. But I think, again, the advantage, you take two quarterbacks, and there's a pretty good chance that at least one is going to turn out to be good enough to be a starter. And it could be either of those two guys down the road. But at least now you have a succession plan in place for life post-Keaton Slovis. I talked to a recruiting coordinator of a Power 5 school today, and the names that jumped out for him on USC's list were Prophet Brown, the corner and athlete from Elk Grove, suburb of Sacramento. If you look at his profile, you'll see great numbers on both sides of the ball as a corner, as a receiver. He played basketball. He's a 10-900 guy. So this person I talked to was very high on him and very high on Michael Trick. Those were the two names that he mentioned to me right away. He thought the offensive lineman, just okay. Not great, just okay. But those were two that I said besides Foreman and besides Wright. And those were the two that popped out. So I think addressing need, and certainly the defensive backfield was one of those areas to infuse with a quality group to create some depth. That was important to do. Same with the quarterback position. Trig, the tight end from Tampa, also accomplished on the defensive side as a defensive end. So he possibly could end up on that side of the ball, but at least initially it will start out as a tight end. And then, as you said, it seems likely from what we're hearing that Rajon Davis will sign the modern-day linebacker from LSU commit, which probably pushes up the ranking another spot, perhaps. So I think overall, this is a, a great confirmation that the new staff and sort of the new emphasis on recruiting, even into the administrative end with the recent hires where the emphasis was going to be on the ability to present a great package and be able to represent the USC brand well in recruiting. That appears to have paid off. So as Mike Bone has kind of overseen the revamp of, you know, the whole kind of recruiting process for USC football, it appears to have been very much of a success in year one. Yeah, for sure. Definitely by the rankings. And of course, with recruiting rankings, you never know. You still have to get them in. You still have to get them to play well, coach them up. So we'll see how it all turns out. But definitely almost a 180 turnaround from the previous year in terms of USC for recruiting rankings. And like you said, still could maybe go up a few spots if Modern Days Davis decides to commit, which most people think he will. And it is a positive sign for sure for USC. Their mantra was take back the West. They got a bunch of guys from local and from the West Coast to stick around. 
made inroads into Texas, which is to be expected when you bring in a bunch of coaches from Texas as well. Right. So yep. hopefully we'll continue to see this growth for USC going forward. Of course, you are listening to the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. I'm Nara Wang. My guest today is an associate professor for the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, Jeff Fellenzer. If you enjoy listening to this show, subscribe and rate it wherever you get your favorite podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Luminary, TuneIn. Go to the website Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media at Believe Podcasts. If you want to catch up with me, I'm on Twitter at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Jeff, how do the people reach out to you? Follow me on Twitter at Jay Fellenzer, F-E-L-L-E-N-Z-E-R. Love to have you tune in and listen to my podcast. It's called The Front Row. I named it such because in my classes at USC, my sports business media class, I always appreciate it when students sit in the front row. Always sends a great message to any teacher. My podcast is about talking to newsmakers in sports and really finding out about their journeys in life, how they got from there to here. What were their keys to success? And you can listen to my conversation with Sam Darnold after his rookie season, and Dominican Sue, Bill Walton. And then we released one that was actually taken from class when Dick Enberg, the late great sportscaster Dick Enberg, was a guest in my class. A memorable night for me, having listened to Dick and followed him for so many years and really growing up with him as one of the voices in Los Angeles sports. So really treasure the time I spent. I Dick as a guest one night in class, and we turned that into a podcast. So however you access podcasts, I would love to have your audience tune in sometime. With a new year comes tons of new big games in sports. With big games, you need big stakes. Kansas City Stakes has the cuts you crave to celebrate the playoffs and the big game. Visit KansasCityStakes.com slash game day and save up to $25 on combos perfect for game day. Plus, get free shipping with code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V, at checkout. Try out the Snack Pack Combo, featuring small plates with big flavor, mini beef Wellington steak burger sliders, mac and cheese melts, and shrimp wrapped in bacon. Every order is flash frozen, delivered directly to your home. Satisfaction guaranteed, or your money back. Basically, every cut of steak imaginable, plus appetizers, desserts, barbecue, and so much more. Again, go to kansascitysteaks.com slash gameday and use the code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V, at checkout for free shipping. Kansas City Steaks. Big games, big taste. And as we record this episode on a Thursday afternoon, we're getting ready for a weekend of women's and men's basketball for USC. The women are at home against Utah and Colorado. Currently, the women of Troy are 3-5 on the season, 1-5 in Pac-12 play, coming off a 92-69 loss on New Year's Day against then number 8, now number 11, Oregon up in Eugene. Their game that was supposed to be January 3rd against Oregon State was postponed because OSU has been on pause since December 20th due to COVID-19 
issues within their program, so we'll see if that game gets made up at some point later on. Grad transfer Jordan Sanders has scored double figures in six straight games and leads the Pac-12 in three-point shooting. She has made an incredible 16 of 24 on the season, two-thirds of her three-point shots. So far, sophomore guard India Rogers leads the team in scoring at a little over 17 a game and assists as well at just over four and a half a game. What do you make of the women so far this year? Well, it's been a bit up and down, which I guess was probably to be expected. You mentioned Jordan Sanders, pleasant surprise, maybe even exceeding expectations with her shooting. It's a team that's got talent. I like Coach Track, but it's a tough league. You know, when Arizona turns into a top 10 team, that kind of really came out of, if not nowhere, it was a long time coming to get Arizona back up there. That, you know, Stanford's a juggernaut, obviously, and UCLA has been around top 10 the last couple of years. And you know, Oregon, I mean, that's one of those where you say, you know, where are we going to get our wins? And so I would say to try to, you know, finish the season on a high note and, you know, make a run, try to get to the NCAA tournament is going to be a challenge. But I think there's enough talent to at least be competitive and have a shot, at least try to make a run in the conference tournament, you know, see if you can get an upset here and there and just get into a rhythm and go on a run. It's going to take something like that because it's a really competitive league. Meanwhile, for the men, they are on the road for their first true road games. They had played earlier this season in the tournament out in Connecticut, but now they are actually going for true road games, the Arizona swing at Arizona and then Arizona State. So the men are 6-2 and two overall, 1-1 one and one in conference play, and they're coming off a 64-46 win on January 2nd against Utah when Amazingly, freshman Evan Mobley didn't shoot a field goal and only went three of six from the free throw line, and yet they still cruised to a big, impressive victory over the Utes. And Arizona, of course, has declared that they are not going to a postseason this year. They've imposed a one-year postseason ban due to all of the stuff that has come out from the FBI investigation from a few years back. So... They are not going anywhere for postseason, but they are having a decent season so far at 9-1, and 3-1 and in the conference. USC has won three of their last four games against the Wildcats, but they've lost 10 straight in Tucson at the McHale Center against the Sun Devils. USC has split the last 10 meetings, all decided by 10 points or less, but they have lost seven consecutive in Tempe. The Sun Devils have been hit by some COVID issues, so they've only played seven games. They are 4-3 and three and 1-0 and oh in conference. For USC, the aforementioned Evan Mobley leading the team in scoring and rebounding, averaging basically 15-8 and eight on the season. The transfer from Santa Clara, Taj Edey, is second on the team in scoring at 12.8 a game and leads in assists at 3.25 a, a game. And Rice transfer, Drew Peterson, the other USC Trojan in double figures scoring at 10.5 a game, and he leads the team in three-point shooting, having gone 8 of 15 so far on the season, over 53%. So what do you think about the men's team so far? Well, first of all, Nora, the statistic that jumped out as maybe being the craziest one, one of the craziest in college basketball in this crazy season is Evan Mobley not attempting a shot in 31 minutes. I still have a hard time, you know, wrapping my head around that one. 
I saw that and just thought, boy, that absolutely can never, ever happen again. And they won. Like, that's the craziest part, even. You're, you're they right. won. You're right. But, you know, right away, my thought is, as a coaching staff, you have to look at I, mean, I don't know how you look at that after eight minutes, 10 minutes, halfway through the half and say, you know, during a timeout, this kid over here who's seven feet tall, our leading scorer, hasn't attempted a shot. Let's make sure he gets a few shots to get into some kind of a rhythm. Halftime. But to go and not, go through the entire game, I, I, that's mind boggling to me. So I would assume that, and by the way, that doesn't absolve the player himself from some responsibility and teammates too to say, we got to get our guy in, you know, in some kind of a rhythm on offense. Now, what it does tell you is that USC has a lot of weapons. And what's been most noticeable to me about the team overall is with all the transfers that arrived, there were a lot of players to replace that were significant contributors. And with all of the transfers, a few guys have really emerged. Taj Edi and Drew Peterson. Drew Pearson played some point over the weekend and I think acquitted himself pretty well, you know, in Ethan Anderson's absence. And Noah Bauman, of course, can really shoot the ball. He's got really good range. Chavez Goodwin, you know, was a real low post threat, really good in the paint, physical and tough. And Isaiah White sort of does a little bit of everything. I thought going into last weekend, I told a couple of friends this, I thought USC was probably the most talented team in the Pac-12 at that point going into the weekend. Then you saw where, you know, there's still work to be done with, you know, the results that came out of the weekend. I mean, Colorado just kind of came and jumped them and McKinley Wright like imposed his will and the team just didn't respond. And Utah had really expended a lot of energy at Pauley Pavilion a couple nights earlier. And, you know, USC seized that opportunity and beat the Utes. And that was a good win. That was a must win really to at least split at home. But I think the league is still up for grabs. I think the Arizona trip is important. Those are certainly two winnable games. I watched the Arizona-Washington State double overtime game last weekend, and Arizona is definitely not what they have been. No question about that. So they're certainly vulnerable. You can go into McHale and win this year. ASU has been a tough hurdle for USC the last few years, as you mentioned. But I think there's enough weapons on this team. There's a lot of ways they could score. I think the pieces are coming together. Again, a real glitch was. Mobley and trying to figure out, because Isaiah only attempted three shots, Nara. So you're talking about three shot attempts for those two near seven footers, and they each played 31 minutes against Utah. Yeah. So there's work to be done in terms of figuring out things on offense. You don't want to become too perimeter heavy when you've got inside threats like that. But again, I feel like the team's in a pretty good place. Now let's see if they can, you know, make a move. Because the league is up for grabs. And though I think that USC has the talent to play with anybody, you know, they're kind of trying to do it with a committee at point guard, which is not easy until Ethan Anderson comes back. So I think it's going to be like, I think every weekend is going to be an adventure, not only from the standpoint of will you play the games because of COVID, but just, you know, every weekend gives you an opportunity to maybe win not just one, but two games. But if you're not careful, you could lose one or even two games. So it's kind of balanced a little bit in some ways with contenders. I think USC has as good a shot as any at this point. Yeah, and I think there's a couple of ways you can look at the Evan Mobley not shooting, which I don't think USC can consider that a sustainable strategy to have your best <laughs> player not take shots. Right. But the other way to look at it is that he didn't force bad shots. He was able to get other people involved by 
drawing defense to him, and other guys stepped up and took advantage of that. And you didn't see him pouting. You didn't see him looking upset that he wasn't getting points. And so I think that shows the character of Evan Mobley, that he's a team player and wants the team to succeed. They were succeeding without him really contributing greatly offensively. So I think that's the flip side of it. Now, yes, he has to get more touches and more chances to score. He probably has to be a little bit more aggressive sometimes. But I like the fact that he is not looking to just take terrible shots just because he needs to score. Yeah, no, that's a good point. He's the son of a coach and, you know, from a basketball family. His dad was a good player in college in Portland. And so certainly I think he's got the right makeup and attitude. You don't want him to become too passive. That's the thing is you want him to be aggressive because if you're aggressive and looking for your shot, it probably means you're also going to be aggressive in all aspects of your game, you know, defense and you stay involved, you stay in tune on offense, you know, if the ball goes inside and then out, that's better as well for your shooters. So I just think it makes sense, especially when you're a good shooter and you're a good free throw shooter, you want to get shot attempts and you want to draw fouls. So it just makes sense to make sure that you get difference makers like that involved. At the same time, as you said, it's also good that a guy doesn't have that attitude of, I got to get mine. That's a good thing too, because you want to have a feeling that it's a team and you know, you're trying to be the team that's the sum of its parts. And it seems like USC, as I said, has a lot of weapons. So now let's see after that kind of odd weekend that we saw a little bit up and down, how the team comes out on the road which is tough, but not as tough without fans in the stands. So let's see. And now on a sadder note with the USC men's basketball program, we have to note the passing of the guy I consider the greatest USC basketball player of all time, Paul Westfall. He died on January 2nd of brain cancer at the age of 70. And it's funny because on the last time you were on, we actually ended up talking about Paul Westfall a little bit during our discussion about Tom Seaver. And we had mentioned at the time that he, you know, had recently been announced that he had brain cancer. So he does die on January 2nd of it. And again, to me, the best guy who played at USC when you consider the breadth of his entire basketball career, he ends up getting elected to the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame finally in just 2019, the College Basketball Hall of Fame the year before that. I think those were both long overdue. He had been put into the USC Athletic Hall of Fame back in 1997. And when he was a junior, he led the 1970-71 team along with Ron Riley and Dennis Layton to that classic 24-2 record, which is still the school record for win percentage at over 92%. And those only two losses for USC that year were to John Wooden's UCLA squad in Pac-8 play, which kept the Trojans from making the NCAA tournament because back then only conference champs were allowed into the tournament and they were ranked number two in the country when they lost to UCLA which was ranked number three actually in February and then USC was number three when they lost to number one UCLA in the final game of the season and they were so good that they were still ranked number five in the final AP poll that year. The next year, as captain, as a senior, he led the 1971-72 team with over 20 points a game, ended up getting drafted 10th overall by the Boston Celtics, won an NBA title with them in 1974, but 
He got traded to the Phoenix Suns in 1975, and I think that's where most people know him and where he kind of made his name. He led them to the NBA Finals against the Celtics in 1976, got traded to the Seattle Supersonics in 1980, signed as a free agent with the New York Knicks in 1981, before coming back to the Suns in 1983 for one last season there. Five-time NBA All-Star, three-time first-team All-NBA, one-time second-team All-NBA, and then... After a great playing career, he goes into coaching. He starts out small. He led what was then Grand Canyon College to the NAIA championship in 1988 as their head coach before becoming an assistant to Cotton Fitzsimmons with the Phoenix Suns. He took over for Fitzsimmons in the 92-93 season and took the Suns to the NBA Finals where they lost to Michael Jordan's Chicago Bulls. He later became the head coach for the Supersonics and Sacramento Kings in the NBA and for Pepperdine in college as well. And I mean, just a tremendous basketball person, even did broadcasting in between coaching stints. And again, in my opinion, the best USC basketball player ever, Paul Westfall. So what are your thoughts about his passing? Well, you laid it out really nicely, Nara, as far as his accomplishments. I completely agree with you. For me, he was the number one greatest player in USC history. Bill Sharman is certainly right there. You have a heck of a backcourt, right? Two guys that had uh, a number of years and multiple championships with the Boston Celtics. Sharman, anyway, and Westfall with the one year in 74. But, you know, I'm old enough to remember when he was in high school at Aviation High in Renondo Beach. I remember watching him on a Saturday he used to have Saturday morning high school basketball. Ross Porter did the play-by-play, and Tommy Hawkins did the color. And that was before most of us were able to, or people just didn't really get in their cars and go to high school games all over Southern California like you kind of see happen today. So you just hear about these players. And then to watch Westfall, he was a revelation. No, he really was. I mean, I don't recall ever seeing, and I compare a lot of players to him when I see them that are proficient with both hands. You know, he was a right-handed player who used his left hand so well that you would have thought he was a southpaw. And I'll see a guy that's pretty good at that. And I'll just remember, I'll think of Westfall right away. And like, well, he's not Paul Westfall ambidextrous, but pretty good. You know, he's become the gold standard for me on a player that was equally adept with either hand. It's so rare to find, which tells me growing up that he was very conscious of using his off hand well. And his older brother, Bill, played on USC teams that were pretty good in the early 60s playing for Forrest Too Good. So I think USC probably had a recruiting advantage because Bill Westfall was a Trojan. But I talked to Coach Wooden, who I was blessed to have what I consider to be a close friendship with all the way really to the end. He was a guest in my class three different times. And I asked him one day, we had many, many conversations, many of them in his home in Encino. And I asked him about the Westfall recruitment, because it was one of the few players in the middle of the dynasty that he didn't get. And he said, you know, Paul came to our camp, our summer camp for years. So, you know, they had the advantage of having a relationship with him. UCLA had won at that point. Coach Wooden had won three national, actually he'd won four by the time Paul signed and, you know, on his way to winning six more. And he said, you know, I went into his home and he told us he was coming and it was a Friday. So it was the Friday before signing day. And then the next week on Tuesday, we found out that he was going to sign with USC and he signed on the first day of the signing period. And so it turned out that it was probably a bigger factor than I really knew. It 
following it from afar then that, you know, he grew up in a USC family and he said, I kind of was a USC kid. And he kind of thought, you know, they really sold him, especially Jim Hefner, who was the assistant coach that was so dogged in his pursuit for Bob Boyd of Westfall. And they lived in the same area. Hefner's lived in South Bay for a long time. And Westfall was born in Torrance and then grew up in the Redondo Beach area. And, you know, they really pushed him on the idea of we're building a team and we'll build it around you that we think can be good enough to beat UCLA. So you can be part of the group that, you know, knocks off the king. And they almost did. I mean, can you imagine being 24 and two and not making the NCAA tournament? I mean, they would have been, obviously today, they probably would have been a number one seed, maybe not in the West. Maybe UCLA would have been in the West and they would have gone to another region. But there would have been a pretty good chance that team was good enough to make a Final Four and maybe even get a rematch against the Bruins in the Final Four. I mean, how fun would that have been? It's just inconceivable to think that you would have had a system that wouldn't have allowed for teams that didn't win their league championship to get to the NCAA tournament. That was always what was so crazy about the ACC tournament. That was the first league that had a postseason tournament that really was just designed to generate interest and extra revenue for the schools. You'd play this, you know, knockdown, drag out regular season, and then you'd go play another season in a sense over about four days. And the winner of the tournament, of the conference tournament in the ACC was the only one that made the NCAA tournament. You could have gone undefeated in the regular season, but if you didn't win the ACC tournament over those four days, you didn't make the tournament at all. So that's how nuts it was and how hard it was just to get in. Once you got in, there weren't as many steps because there weren't as many teams. But it's a shame that USC team, that 24-2 and team you mentioned in 71, was so much fun to watch. Talked to a friend of mine who went to every game. We just talked about Paul Westfall just over the weekend and said I went to every single one of those games. And He was just a high school student. But they were so fun to watch, so entertaining. Mo Layton, Joe Mackey, and Westfall, and Ron Riley. So, you know, Westfall, he was a star, and he seemed to get the most out of his talent at every single level. Dominant in high school, dominant in college, and a great NBA career. I didn't know him personally. I had a couple of really good friends that were good friends with him, and they raved about his character and what a wonderful person he was. And I heard some great stories over this last week or so, and really sad, but you just realized what a tremendous impact he had on not just USC, but on basketball in Southern California as being somebody who is as good as the guy and decorated a player as really as almost has ever come out of the greater Los Angeles area. He's somebody for USC fans to really take a lot of pride in having produced Paul Westfall's Hall of Famer in every way. For sure. And like I said, it was long overdue for him to get in. I'm glad he was able to get in before his health deteriorated. And of course, our condolences to the Westfall family. He survived by his wife, Cindy, two children, and a number of grandchildren as well. So Paul Westfall, again, dying of brain cancer on January 2nd at the age of 70. And of course, you are listening to the Everything USC podcast. I'm your host, Nara Wang. My guest is Jeff Fellenzer for this episode, Associate Professor at the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. And you can always catch this show on all of your favorite podcast directories, iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn, or go to the website Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media, at Believe Podcasts. For me, I'm on Twitter. You can find and follow me at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. 
Jeff, how does everyone catch up with you on social media? On Twitter, it's just at jfellenzer, F-E-L-L-E-N-Z is in zebra E-R. Instagram, same. Make sure you tune in to the Front Row Podcasts, which you can access through iTunes or however you get podcasts. We'd love to have your audience join us for the podcast that we've recorded and we'll have more coming out this spring I'm excited about. What a catch by George Kittle! <laughs> hey Niner fans, George Kittle here with a pro tip for making the best play on your eyewear. Visit Zinni.com, the official eyewear of the 49ers. Zinni has changed the game for you, finally making prescription glasses affordable for everyone. At Zinni, you can find over 3,000 frames with unbelievable prices. Look for the Kittles collection so you can rock our styles every day too. So visit Z-E-N-N-I.com, start shopping from home using their virtual try-on, and change your eyewear game forever. Hi, this is Tim Brando of Fox Sports, and you're listening to the Everything USC podcast with Nara Wang here on the Believe Podcast Network. Jeff, you are a voter for the Heisman Trophy Award and the winner for the 2020 season, wide receiver Devontae Smith out of Alabama, taking it with 1,856 points and 447 first place votes. He becomes the third Alabama player to win the award following Mark Ingram in 2009 and Derrick Henry in 2015 not including the vacated Heisman of Reggie Bush in 2005. Those are the only three non-quarterbacks to win the Heisman in the 2000s. And he becomes the fourth wide receiver to win the award following Johnny Rogers of Nebraska in 1972. Although Rogers was kind of a wide receiver slash running back, all-purpose guy. Tim Brown in 1987 for Notre Dame. And the last one to do it, at the wide receiver position, Desmond Howard of Michigan in 1991. Quarterback Trevor Lawrence of Clemson finished second with 1,187 points and 222 first place votes. Devontae Smith's teammate, Mac Jones, the quarterback of Alabama, was third with 1,130 points and 138 first place votes. Florida quarterback Kyle Trask, a distant fourth, and actually in fifth place was another Crimson Tide player Najee Harris the running back so Jeff since I've got you on how did you vote (laughs) and why well I felt that this was a year when there was a very deserving candidate for the award that wasn't a quarterback there isn't always a year when you can say that the guy that might be most deserving or as deserving as a quarterback is right there, you know, on your radar screen. And this year there was, it was Devontae Smith, and that's who I voted for. So my ballot, there's only three lines on the ballot. So however many guys get votes, there's only three lines. And mine went to Devontae Smith one, I had Kyle Trask two, and then I had Mac Jones three. I felt like, as I said, this was a year when you had a receiver that was, to me, dominant at his position. He made every big catch. He had a kick return, so he did compare somewhat favorably to Desmond Howard. It's hard to compete with the numbers that quarterbacks can put up because the dual threat guys that have made such a huge impact on college football in recent years, like Kyler Murray and Jalen Hurts, and players that can be star players with both their arm and their legs, it's pretty hard to compete with them you know, statistically. And I felt like Smith really did that with his numbers and his performance in big games. You go back to his true freshman season when he catches the pass 
that wins the national championship. So he really wrapped up an amazing career at Alabama, and I thought he was very, very deserving of the award. And by all accounts, seems like a person of high character and humble and grounded. And so you feel good when you can vote for someone that seems to be a high caliber person as well. And an actual senior winning the award, which is rare nowadays with the Heisman, as well as many other awards in college athletics that an upperclassman actually wins the award. And I don't know if you agree or disagree with me, but if it wasn't for Jalen Waddell's injury early in the season, it's unlikely that he wins the Heisman Trophy. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more, Nora. I, I think that opened it up for him to be the go-to guy and to play another position besides quarterback and get the attention and get at least the you know the numbers that make anybody feel like you can compete with the quarterback numbers. You're going to have to be a go-to guy, whether it's as a running back with a lot of carries like Derrick Henry got when he was in college, and which he's still getting now in the NFL. And Smith got that. Otherwise, you would have probably been split between Smith and Waddle. And Waddle was really on my short list when the season began. But the injury kind of, you know, opened things up. And Alabama and Mac Jones took full advantage of that. You know, and Jones really made a run himself and certainly was in the conversation. I thought Trask was, to me, he was consistent all the way. You know, he stepped back a little bit probably after the LSU upset. But he was really good in the SEC championship game in defeat. And then, of course, in the bowl game, which was held after the voting. And people have to remember that, that the voting is done before the bowl game. It's a regular season award, whether you could debate that or not. But I think the Heisman people like the idea of the award being given at a time when there's a bit of a lull in college football. So as far as why they don't wait till after the bowl games, they want to reward the regular season. And it's kind of has its place right there in between the regular season bowl games. But I thought he was just very consistent throughout the year, probably not as many weapons as Mac Jones had at Alabama. So I had him second on my ballot. I figured that he probably wouldn't finish that high, that it was more likely he'd finish probably where he did fourth. Trevor Lawrence, to me, missing those two games, kind of had to mark him down for that. Just in a season that's shortened anyway, I thought missing two games was significant. To me, you had really five kind of elite candidates there, including Harris, who finished fifth. But I was glad to see, I think it's great when another position can win the award. Somebody mentioned to me, hey, when's a lineman going to win it? You know, I said, well, that's why they have lineman awards, like the Outland and Lombardi, because it's just, you can't, it's hard for any lineman to compete with offensive players because of the numbers. I mean, for most voters, you've got to have statistics of some kind, you know, to wrap your head around. And it's hard to do that when you're a lineman. What does that mean? Pancake blocks? You know, what exactly is it going to be? I had Dominican Sue number two in 2009, and I kind of wished I'd had Adam number one. When I interviewed him for my podcast, I kidded and said, will you accept my apology? As soon as I saw the bowl game, I thought, yeah, you were the best player in the country that year. But had him up as high at least as number two, and I think he finished third in the voting that year. But it's fun to be part of the process, and it was a weird year, of course, with the games not being sure whether you're going to have them, and some teams playing – a uh, few games less than other teams. So everybody, you know, got through it. And I was glad at least the award was able to stay intact and we didn't have to miss a year and have a red shirt Heisman season. At least they did have a season and they did award a Heisman trophy, the winner, Alabama wide receiver Devontae Smith. And I always enjoy getting your perspective as a Heisman voter to see how you 
made your determination on who to vote for. So I'm glad to have you on to talk about that. And again, appreciate your time. And what do you got coming up for guests on classes for the upcoming semester here at USC? You know, I'm really excited. I always am going into any semester, Nara. This is kind of the biggest break we've had. They gave the students a little more time at home because of COVID. And so we're starting the semester a little bit later. There's actually no spring break this semester. We're going straight through. Classes officially start on the 15th of January. My first class is the 19th. This spring, I always have Scott Boris, baseball super agent, really interested in what Scott has to say about the business of baseball, especially this year collective bargaining agreement expires after this upcoming season. Scott's got a lot of the high-profile free agents. He's got Corey Seager and Cody Bellinger on the Dodgers, and Scott's been a great guest and a great friend, and you probably know that both of his sons went to USC, Shane and Trent, and so I'm excited whenever Scott joins us, which is always in the spring. Casey Wasserman from the Wasserman Media Group, or just Wasserman now, his company, one of the powerhouse sports agencies, he'll be joining us this semester. and. guy that I had in the fall that I'm looking forward to having again is Doug Glanville, who does such a great job as a baseball analyst for ESPN and co-hosts a podcast with Jason Stark, Starkville. And he's just so smart. He writes for the New York Times. So he's a broadcaster, a writer. He had a great career. He was a first-round draft pick of the Cubs. He's got such a great perspective, and he was so eloquent in describing the impact of the you know, the social movements and social justice demonstrations that we saw last summer. He joined my class for the first time last fall and the impact as a black man and black athlete, what that meant to him and telling us some stories about coming up in the 90s as he did and some of the challenges that he faced. So again, it's about the business of sports and sports media. And I'm excited. It's different. We're doing it via Zoom, so it's not quite the same. But I will say this, the administration at USC is anxious to get students back in the classroom, I think, as we all are. But in the meantime, you know, we try to do the best we can and make the best of what we can do. And for me, it's having, uh, being able to tell, you know, great stories and talk about the business side and the media side. We always devote at least one class every semester to talking about the USC-Alabama game in 1970 because of the impact that it had on race relations in the South and college football in general, specifically in the South. Sam Cunningham and John Papadakis and Bill Holland, who were all on that USC team in 1970 and played in the historic game, always join us. And that's a very impactful class. I think that's one that students never seem to forget, bring that up often to me over the years. So always looking forward to that. That's great. Great list of guests as usual. And so as we finish it off, I just got to say, I always enjoy when Bill Walton brings up your name when he does a USC (laughs) basketball broadcast. So always enjoy listening. To him, say, hey, you got to listen to Jeff Felenzer and take his class at USC <laughs> as only Bill Walton can. That was a terrible Bill Walton impersonation. I don't, it, was a half, it was a half-hearted one, really. Uh, I love Bill. He's a unique guy, great guy. He's got so much energy. I admire how he really has gone from the top down to the very bottom, just kind of the depths in his life and trying to overcome a back ailment and he had some really dark days and he's come all the way back and so what you see when you watch him and listen to him is a guy that truly is thankful and and grateful for every day and you know he really sets a good example in that regard jeff always fun to talk to you about sports man thanks a lot nar pleasure
So, for my guest, Jeff Fellinzer, I'm Nara Wang. Thanks for joining us for episode 20 of the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with a show for every team in LA and so much more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? And like I end every show, please remember to fight on. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.